take a copy of God's Word and let's carry on in our narrative today in the book of Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 also wanted to um, point your direction not only to Acts chapter 10, but a reference later in the text if you would like to turn there as well. Hold your spot will be Romans chapter 8 verse 31 and 32. Two places I will be in the text and want to highlight uh, today as we work through chapter 10 of the book of Acts. And if I had to place a title upon this uh, particular sermon, it would be something to the effect of the house of Cornelius, devout and reverent. Highlighting both devotion and reverence seen through the eyes of the evangelist Luke writing about a Gentile God-fearer. But anywhere that you drop into the Word of God, anywhere you drop into the text, you will always find your way to Jesus Messiah. A student of God's Word, no matter if you drop in Genesis or in the book of the Revelation, you will always find and always navigate your way to Jesus. See, without Jesus as the cornerstone of the preached Word of God, without Jesus being the actual cornerstone, you are left with just a feel-good-about-yourself mentality versus let's make much of Jesus reality. There's a difference between a mentality and a reality. And I really don't want to leave this place thinking that I left this place just feeling good about myself. Now, as we worship King Jesus, I believe that we will be satisfied in Him alone and be inspired when we leave. But that is different than feeling good about myself. Do we really want to leave today just feeling good about ourselves? Or do we want to leave this place today saying that we have encountered the living God, that we heard about Him in the Word and worship Him in spirit and in truth, and the beauty of it all is that we have come and we have done it together. Individual worshipers and corporately, we have come together and we have encountered the living God through music, through His Word, through His Holy Spirit, and reflection upon the Son of God. And we've done it together. The sermon today will be taken from the first eight verses in chapter 10 of the book of Acts. And again, the title is The House of Cornelius, Devout and, and Reverent. And Cornelius is a man of devotion and, and reverence. And we're going to highlight some of those characteristics today in Cornelius and look at his life as a God-fearer. And uh, we'll look at his life, not that we want to emulate uh, Cornelius, because we want our example to be Christ, but there are some things that we can grab a hold to as we, as children of God, seek to make disciples in our homes, in our congregation. As we seek to make disciples, I think it needs to be saturated with devotion and, and reverence 
to the God that we serve. Amen. I'd ask if you will, let's stand in honor of the reading of the word of the Lord. Again, I will be reading from the first eight verses, Acts chapter 10. If you have that in your copy of God's word, let me hear you say amen, proud and loud. Verse 1, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people and he prayed continually to God. By the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God came in and said to him, Cornelius! And he stared at him in terror and he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from amongst those who attended him. And having related everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. Lord, we ask you that as we work through this text today, teach us, God, mold us, shape us in the image of the Son. Teach us, Lord, about devotion and reverence. Things, Lord, I think that we certainly need in this day and time is a recaptured fear of the Lord God Almighty. And teach us that today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you would recall last week's time in the book of Acts, a few things had begun to unfold. The Apostle Paul had traveled between two different locations, about 30 to 35 mile stretch from what is called Luda to Joppa. And between the two locations, the Apostle Peter was going forward preaching the resurrected Jesus, Jesus as Messiah. And both of these places was a miracle that had took place that really helped to highlight the resurrection and the power of, of Jesus. The Apostle Peter was highlighting the risen Lord and the power in the resurrected Lord Jesus. Peter was at Luda and he had encountered a paralytic man by the name of Aeneas. If you remember, Aeneas' name simply means praise. And so by this healing of Aeneas, the Lord Jesus redirected Aeneas' praise back to the Lord God Almighty and back to the risen Christ, or to the risen Christ, and away from a lifestyle of paganism and pagan worship. It was a redirecting of Aeneas' praise back to God Almighty. So a snapshot of something uh, of this narrative would be Peter healed this man by the name of Aeneas. And you remember how he healed Aeneas? By the power of Jesus Christ, he healed Aeneas, he rose up immediately, and the Bible tells us that immediately the people turned to the Lord Jesus. And I can only infer that this turning to the Lord meant that they repented of their sins and pursued Jesus for the rest of their life. Word gets out, the apostle Peter was in Luda, some 30 to 35 miles from Joppa. And there was a woman in Joppa by the name of uh, Tabitha or Dorcas who had just recently passed away. The body had been prepared for burial. Uh, Luke wants us to know that Tabitha was indeed dead. She wasn't going to rise up. She wasn't going to get up. She wasn't sleeping. She wasn't just swooning on that on that bed, covered and prepared, she was passed away. But one last ditch act of faith, they sent two disciples to, pet, to fetch the Apostle Peter. 
He goes into the upper room. He grabs Tabitha by the hand and says, Arise, child, or Tabitha, arise. She arose. People saw the miracle. And again, it tells us that people turned to the Lord Jesus. They pursued Jesus, not because of the miracle itself, but because there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the resurrected Lord. The people of Luda and Joppa had faith in Jesus. They flourished. And the Bible says that they grew in, in their faith in Jesus. Likewise, in today's narrative, Luke begins to demonstrate how the gospel is going to begin to go to the outermost parts of the world. If you remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the end portion of that, to the outermost parts, and they'll begin to dip their toes into Gentile territory, if you will. Some call this interaction between Cornelius in chapter 10 and the Apostle Peter. Some would label this as the Gentile Pentecost, much like what we see in Acts chapter 2 in the upper room discourse, but now with Gentile people following Jesus. The next couple of weeks we will peer into this Gentile Pentecost, the house of Cornelius, and we will see some examples of God's faithfulness. We'll see an example of a man who was devout to the Lord and reverent in his worship. And you might ask yourself, well, preacher, how do we find how the house of Cornelius was embedded with the fear of the Lord, and how is he devout, and how did he show devotion and reverence to the Lord God Almighty? I want to give you two different ways into how we can find his devotion and reverence. And I submit to you that they all stem from a healthy fear of the Lord. And I submit to you that a healthy fear of the Lord yields devotion. A healthy fear of God Almighty in reverential worship will yield true devotion to the Lord Jesus and the Lord God, the Lord God Almighty. Now, before we begin in these first uh, three verses, I would like to address the difference between devotion and legalism. Because sometimes these two can cross paths. Legalism might look something like this in our worship. Well, you know what? We have to have five songs that we sing this morning or it's not worship. We need to have a special or it isn't worship. Legalism might look something like this. We have to have the organ or piano. If it's not there, it's not worship. We have to have guitar, drums, and some, something modern in the hymns. And if we don't, it's not worship. And that could be legalism in our time of worship. But we chalk it up to devotion as if somehow we are pleasing God by the articulation of our order of service. It might be something like this. We got to pray five times in our worship service or we are, we are not devoted to God. And then we can leave this place walking out the door because our legalism has bled over into our devotion. And we'll leave this place thinking somehow that I please God. And by the way, legalism is adding something to the Word of God, imperatives in Scripture, that is not there. See, legalism is about making oneself happy in the pursuit of God, feeling satisfied that, that you have done well in your pursuit when devotion is seeking to please God and not self. When we leave this place, our worship... Our time before God should be about making much of Him and not of us. Somebody say amen. I want God to be pleased. And so, yeah, there is a fine line of devotion 
and legalism. And by the way, it's not just other churches down the road or this church over here. I think there is a hint of legalism, if we're not careful, that we will dive into, that we will cross over. So we must, we must be careful to divide the lines between devotion to God and what that looks like, devotion to Christ and adoration and just the scent of legalism in the things that we do. I want you to notice what is noted about Cornelius. Cornelius is from Caesarea, a man, uh, Cornelius, he was a centurion in what was known as the Italian uh, cohort. So almost north of Joppa, if you were to take up a nap, you would see that north of Joppa is uh, Caesarea. And so south from where uh, this centurion is, you would find the apostle Peter there uh, towards Joppa. In fact, if you were to even pull up a map of, of Caesarea, you would, you would look up on that map. And north of that, further up north, is that of Samaria, which informs us, if you have been tracking with Acts 1-8, this Judea, this Jerusalem, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, you begin to get this um, information, you begin to see as the reader or worshiper that we, as in the worshiper, we are seeing as it unfolds the disciples and apostles and the church beginning to dip their toes into Gentile territory. We are about to have a clashing of cultures. We're about to have a coming together of worlds for the cause of the gospel. And things have not changed in some 2,000 years. Anytime you preach the gospel in this culture or in any culture, there's going to be a clashing of two or three worlds or worldviews that will collide together. And that gives us no excuse to not preach the good news. We will clash in culture today if you're a child of God. That has not changed and will not change until Jesus comes back. But that shouldn't frighten us off. Luke drops this information because Cornelius, he is an important man. He was of the Italian cohort, a centurion, who commanded probably hundreds of soldiers. And so he's a pretty big deal when it comes to the Roman armies. And in this particular cohort of armies, in this Italian cohort or division of Roman soldiers, he is commanding somewhere between 400 to 600 soldiers. He's a pretty big deal. But you know what is a bigger deal when it comes to Cornelius? What is a bigger character attribute, I think, of Cornelius? What is the bigger deal with Cornelius? Instead of the armies that he, or the Roman soldiers that he commanded, what is the bigger deal is what is mentioned next. The Bible says he is a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people and he prayed continually to God. Here is a man... I was thinking about this this morning. Here's a man who is not even a believer in Jesus yet, who probably, I was thinking about this this morning, he probably puts my prayer life and my giving of alms to shame. And here's a Gentile man. What makes this so significant and makes this a bigger deal than just commanding soldiers? He's a key figure in the Roman army, and yet he had to denounce this attitude of the glory of Rome what is called the peace of Rome or the Pax Romana, that you would find peace in Rome no matter the cost. And he had to denounce the pantheon of gods and idols that they worship. He had to denounce all of this in order to be devoted to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had to denounce all of this. 
So Luke says of Cornelius, he was a devout man or a godly man who revered the Lord. The Bible says he tithed over and above and he prayed. So what does this devotion look like if we were to lay this out? Let's look at those three things individually. Cornelius is said to have feared the Lord. Not only did he have a fear of the Lord, but he taught and led his household to do likewise. And we talk about discipleship a lot. And Cornelius is a Gentile. And Cornelius taught his house to give and to pray to God Almighty. I believe that this might even be the first hint of a Gentile discipler in his home. Teaching his household to do likewise. Now, the Greek word that is used for the fear of the Lord is really where we borrow our word. If you were to pull up a Greek uh, lexicon now, and you were to look up this word fear in this case, it's the word where we get our word phobia. So you might have a phobia of something. I always think of arachnophobia, you know, the, the, the fear of spiders, or the long laundry list of phobias that, that we use today. And, and I'm talking about the right usage of this word phobia, not the hijacked word that culture uses today. But phobia in the sense that you are afraid of something, scared of something. In this case, it doesn't mean to be afraid or frightened, not that... Not that the centurion, not that Cornelius was fear or frightened. In this case, it is used in a deep, worshipful way. It means to be in deep awe, A-W-E, or reverence to God Almighty. The object of this healthy fear is Yahweh. The exact phrase is the fear of the Lord. You see that in, in this text. It is used approximately 27 times in the Bible. And in almost every case, it is used to express reverent worship to Jesus or to God Almighty. Just one example, Proverbs 15.33, just one example out of many. Proverbs 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Just one section out of many that the fear of the Lord brings humility. So this fear is not one that expects the Lord to strike you down at any moment or flick you off the face of the earth or cease you to exist at any moment, even though He could, he could do that and He would be justified in doing it but is an over-the-top and what John Piper calls white-hot worship, white-hot reverence to God, an over-the-top that leads to worship and leads to adoration. In other words, in other words, Cornelius saw God as so awesome, the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's so awesome that you can't do anything else but to worship His majesty. Have we come into God's house in that type of awe and adoration where you can't help but do anything but to worship and revere God Almighty? I think a right worship and a right fear of the Lord will push every other fear out of the way in our lives. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about that. He said, the fear of God is the death, the death of every other fear. It is like a mighty lion. It chases all other fears before it. A fear of the Lord will drive all other fears away because the one that we revere has power over them all. That last portion was my added emphasis. 
the Lord will drive other fears away because He has power over them all. In today's worship dynamic, if I could recapture one element that I think is sometimes lost, it would be the fear or reverence of the Lord. Fear or reverence of the Lord. We should never enter into worship with a flippant attitude. We should never enter worship with an entitled attitude. As if God owes me something. God owes me to make me feel good today. What does God owe us? What does Jesus owe us that hasn't been paid on the cross for our sin? He doesn't owe us anything. And yet we come into worship acting as if we deserve a blessing from the Lord. God wants us to bring our burdens before Him and lay them down at His feet. He doesn't owe us anything. And I believe that we have sometimes lost that reverence and I believe that we come into worship with a flippant attitude when we worship the very God who created this world, who threw the, finger, threw the stars into existence with His fingertips and spoke the, word, the world into existence by His very Word, who sent His Son to die on the cross. And yet, we come together and act like it's just another club meeting and another day. Now, I'm not saying not fellowship, and I'm glad that we fellowship, but it's more about the heart when we come in and our motives when we come in. I love fellowshipping with the body of Christ. And fellowshipping at the beginning and at the end, I think those are important things. And never come into God's house with entitlement, as if I'm entitled for God to make me feel good when I leave. Cornelius is described as a man who gives generously to the people. And this giving of alms is more than just money. It, it used to show compassion and good deeds to those in Caesarea. And I was thinking about this. Cornelius, in some ways, he, he's putting me to shame. It goes above and beyond just giving of money or monetary things. Time and efforts and talents given to the Lord as a way of worship. Let me ask you this. This is for you to evaluate. This is for you to write down and think upon. Are we giving our time and are we giving our resources to look good so that we can boast in front of others? Are we giving so that we can say, look at what I've done? Or are we giving to honor the Lord Jesus? Measure your motives. How about this? We're a missional-minded church, aren't we? We care a lot about missions. As a pastor, sometimes I would find myself, hey, I need to go out there so people can see that I arrived. They need to see that I was part of this. I'll stick my head in so they'll know that I, was, I care about this mission. I'm just being transparent. I struggle with that. Do we go on mission trips just because we haven't been in a while? And we need to go or we're not upholding, we're not towing the line as a missional church? 
Do we go on mission trips just because, you know, we need to be seen, we need to show everybody we're a missional church, or do we go to give honor to Jesus Christ and see people saved and transformed? Again, we must measure our motives. I can't answer that for you. Where's our motives? Cornelius is described as a praying man. This implies that he was in the constant habit of a regular prayer life. <laughs> it's telling of Cornelius, who is a Gentile, by the way, that his prayer life is more commendable than the scribes and Pharisees who's supposed to be the religious figure who people go to to find out about God Almighty. And yet Cornelius, a Gentile believer in God, is seen as more commendable in his prayer life than the scribes and the Pharisees who stand on the corner and pray so people can see them, so their faces, their faces are long, so people can tell that they were fasting. Cornelius is what is referred to as a God-fearer. That's their label. They labeled Gentiles who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a God-fearer, and he would be a worshiper of Yahweh. Not just simply a God-fearer in that regard, he is a worshiper of God here. Meaning that he was not Jewish, but he aligned himself up and worshiped Yahweh. One of the two central fundamental points in Judaism, or for the Hebrews, was that of prayer and tithing or almsgiving. And we find Cornelius involved in all, both of those in his devotion. The Bible says in verse 3 that the ninth hour or 3 o'clock of the day that he clearly saw a vision. An angel of God came and just simply said Cornelius. About 3 p.m. And if you know the Jewish tradition, the Hebrew tradition, 3 p.m. in the afternoon would be a time of usual worship in the evening. So what does that tell you about Cornelius? Cornelius was worshiping the Lord. He was praying continually, seeking God's face. 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And Luke wants us to know, as with the paralytic and the person, and, and Tabitha who was dead, he wants you to know, the reader, worshiper, that he clearly had a vision. He clearly saw this angel of God coming to him and calling out his name, Cornelius. What we'll find in the next couple of weeks, this week and next, is that Cornelius would be the catalyst to change the Apostle Peter's way of thinking on clean and unclean in the kingdom of Christ. And who is actually made in the image of God? Is it Jew and Gentile alighting alike in what is clean and unclean in the kingdom of God? And this would be the first step of this initiation and this interaction. Again, a healthy fear of the Lord will yield devotion. It will yield devotion. And we see this displayed in Cornelius in his fearing of the Lord, his devotion, his giving, and his prayer life. But then we also find that a healthy fear of the Lord will yield obedience. Will yield obedience, not in a legalistic way, as if traditionally we have been taught that we need to do these things or that way, but according to God's Word. Yes, we have freedom in Christ. Yes, we have freedom to serve the Lord Jesus. Yes, we have freedom in Christ, but not when it infringes upon Scripture. Not when it goes against God's Word. That is not freedom. That is sin when we do that. So yes, a healthy fear of the Lord will yield. It will move you to obey what God has said and prescribed in His Word. Now there's an eagerness in the response of Cornelius, and Luke captures this, I believe, 
beginning at verse 4. He stares at this angel of the Lord, the Bible tells us, in terror, and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. In response to the angel, Cornelius responds, What is it, Lord? He wasn't being facetious. He wasn't being irreverent. He wasn't being flippant. He was still worshiping God. He was generally asking what was the intent. Or, like to say, what would you have me do, Lord? The word that is used, many translations have wrote this word terror. The word for terror is an expression to be alarmed, to be startled. And I think that we would be startled as well. I, I think if we were in prayer and all of a sudden an angel of the Lord said, which that wouldn't happen in this time with us in prayer, but an, let's just say an angel of the Lord uh, came before us as we were praying, I would imagine that we would all probably be startled and, and say, well, what, what is it, Lord? What, what would you have me do? And I look at this, and the angel responds. Notice what the angel says. He says, your prayers and your gifts to the poor are pleasing to the Lord. What a message that is. The reality is, this is the goal. And the Greek word is to tell us. It's the goal. It's the vision. It's the goalpost. It's the line. That is the goal of any follower of Jesus Christ, is that our worship would be pleasing to Him. That our worship would be genuine and would be a sweet fragrance. You'll notice that He says that it has ascended as a sweet fragrance before God and pleasing to Him. He says, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter. This is the Simon's. Bring another Simon who is a tanner whose house by the sea. This is where Peter was last. And the angel spoke to him and departed. And he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from amongst those who attended him. And he, he sent them to Joppa. Devout man of Yahweh, a God-fearer, followed the commands of the messenger of the Lord and sent these three to find Peter, who is lodging in Joppa, and yet has not become a believer in Jesus at this point. Now you talk about the election of the Lord God. This is a good demonstration of predestination, the election of this man who would be saved, who God would call to be saved. See, the measure of Cornelius' faith can be implied by the sending of these three men to fetch Peter without knowing up front the Lord's intent. He didn't say, well, Lord, what, what do you, why are you bringing Peter here? Why are you bringing him here? What is your intent? He just simply trusted the word of the Lord through the messenger. And, and friends, I think sometimes we just need to get back to that, to the basics. Just trust God at His word. Cornelius gives us a lesson on a healthy fear of the Lord, and he moves out in obedience. Knowing who we are in Jesus will aid us in responding in faith or in fear. I remember hearing a preacher growing up talk about the opposite of faith is fear. If you don't have faith in God Almighty, there's fear of something there. Or maybe it's the opposite of faith would be your pridefulness. You know, sometimes people don't pray because of their inner pride. 
knowing who we are in Christ will aid us in faith over, over fear. This, this is a simple fear of, of being afraid of something. It's a genuine phobia that we are afraid of something, circumstances in our life, and not having that we have our all-sufficient answer in everything in Christ. Chapman University had commissioned a, a survey. And in this survey, they surveyed about 1,500 uh, different people and released a, a press release later on of their results. And the question was really, what are the top five things that people all are afraid of? Depending on what time in history you in and what you're in and what culture that you are in in that time frame in history will certainly taint or you'll have different, different answers to these five top five questions. But number one was walking alone at night. A fear of walking alone in the dark by yourself at nighttime. Secondly was becoming a victim of identity theft. And it tells you the culture that we are in and somebody gets your information online and they could do a lot of damage and it takes a lot to untangle that. So there's a fear of somebody getting hold of your identity and, and posing as you. It happens all the time, every, every day, somewhere in the world. Third is general safety on the internet. Are children browsing the internet unsupervised? Are they looking at things that they shouldn't be looking at? Are we supervising our children? Do we know what sites and websites that they are going on? There's a genuine fear there of, of having safety on the internet. There is being victims of a mass shooting and uh, having a, a, an active shooter come in. I never would have thought that a church would have to fear somebody coming in one day and opening fire on the congregation. But it's a genuine fear. Fifth on that list is public speaking. How mass shooting and public speaking go hand in hand, I do not know, but... but let me ask you this, do you see what is missing? Now, I'm sure that there is probably a long list of things that people probably fed into this survey... But do you see what is missing out of that top five? What is missing? A healthy, reverent fear of God and the righteous holiness of God Almighty. The same God who holds the universe in His hand. We sing that song, He's got the whole world in His hands. And praise the Lord for that. But at any time, in His hands, He could end humanity by the clutching of those hands together and be justified in ending this, this world, but He is merciful. He is abundant in mercy and long-suffering, waiting for that last one who will be called in history to make that profession of faith and repent of their sin. I don't know who it is. Only the sovereignty of God knows. Only God Almighty. But He is mercy. And he is abundant in mercy. And he still calls the sinner to repent and to trust in his, his son. Now, we talk about phobias, but do you know what is really scary? You know what is the scariest of all? Is being on the opposite side of God's mercy and grace. One of the most frightening verses in the Bible 
And one of the most reassuring verses in the Bible is found in Romans 8, 31, 32. I ask you to turn there at the beginning of, of our time. How is this frightening and how is this reassuring at the same time? If you were to scroll back up, you will see about the predestination and how God has called people to himself. And you'll find about the creation of the, of the world, the created order. You'll, you'll find who we are in Jesus and the security we have in Christ being predestined, called from the foundations of the world as His people, being saved through the, through the righteousness of Jesus alone. We find this in the previous verses of, of Romans chapter 8. But it is frightening and it is reassuring. Look at verse 31. It's on the screen. What then shall we say to these things? The previous, what I mentioned earlier. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's not talking about the schemes of the devil. It's not talking about the fiery darts of the devil, even though that can be implied. What we just saw, that we are in Christ, and we are called into Him by His sovereign grace. We are called into His, His grace in relation with Him. If God is for us, well, who can be against us? Who can be against us? No one. That's reassuring, right? Phenomenal reminder who we are in Jesus. But then verse 32 says this. He who did not spare his own son, I underline that in my Bible, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so in these two verses, we have frightening and a reassurance sandwiched together. Because here's the thought in verse 32. If God did not spare His own Son, who became sin, who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God, what makes you think that He will spare you in your sins? Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful, frightening thing, a true phobia, to fall into the hands of the living God, which means to suffer the wrath and righteousness of God. The most frightening thing to behold, listen friends, the most frightening thing to behold is to die in a sinful state without knowing the risen Christ as Lord. Make sure who you are in Jesus today before you leave this place. See, Cornelius was not yet a believer and he may have not even heard the gospel yet. What is your excuse? We talk about his devotion and his reverence, and he's not even called into Christ yet. What is your excuse? We are saturated with the Bible. We are saturated with biblical truth. You sat under the truth in your Sunday school. You sat under in your small group. You sat under it on the Sunday morning as we divide God's Word. We are saturated with the Bible and with the truth of the gospel what is your excuse? A healthy fear of the Lord will yield devotion and will yield obedience to the living Christ. Again, as we look at Cornelius in his devotion and his reverence, not even a Christ follower yet, but will be, what is, what is your excuse? who have the gospel so readily available. Let's pray together.